everyone. I'm Victor Landa, editor of News Taco. I am also the host of the 18 podcast. And today we have a special edition of our program because today is Memorial Day. It's the day that we reserve at the beginning of summer to pay homage, to give gratitude, and to remember those who gave their life in the defense of our country, men and women of the armed forces who have died in all the battles in defense of the United States. So today I have a special conversation set up with Professor Tomas Summer Sandoval. He is from Pomona College in Fresno, and he's been doing yeoman's work in archiving in the form of conversations, in the form of um, recording the memoirs uh, of Vietnam veterans that happen to be Latino in the United States. There is so much work to be done in this, and, and, and you'll see why in the conversation. You know, the, to begin with, um, back during the Vietnam War and the Vietnam era, Latinos were not counted as such. They, so, so it's really hard to pinpoint the exact number of Latinos who perished in Vietnam. But we all know stories, uh, have family members, people in our community. I, I live in San Antonio, and in San Antonio there is the Edgewood community on the west side of San Antonio where a disproportionate number of young Latinos died in Vietnam, and their memory is uh, sacrosanct to the people of that community. So the work that, that uh, Professor Summers Sandoval is doing um, I think is very important, and I wanted to bring you that conversation I did with him uh, today, uh, being Memorial Day. And just a little bit of background, I met the professor uh, on, uh, I was on, on a trip to Berkeley in Northern California. I was at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, speaking to some students there, and he also was there to, to talk about his research. And uh, that's where we made contact, and I promised him that I would contact him later so that we could record uh, a podcast with him because I feel that his, his work is, is that special. So uh, this is my conversation with uh, Professor Tomas Summer Sandoval uh, about his work um, on uh, Mexican-Americans and Latinos and the Vietnam War um, veterans and, and how that experience changed not only their lives but their families and the communities around them and the history of our country. So uh, let's have that conversation. So, Tomas, welcome to the New Stacco Podcast. Welcome to the Dieciocho Podcast. I know uh, we met uh, in Berkeley some weeks ago, and we really haven't spoken since, but we did make uh, plans to do this podcast. So, bienvenido, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, you are right now, I believe, in your office at, uh, where is it that you teach? Let, t tell us about what you do. I teach at Pomona College. Uh, it's a small liberal arts college in Southern California, or about 30 miles east of uh, Los Angeles, and uh, I teach uh, Chicano Latino history uh, over here. And this is the end of your semester, so I imagine you're very busy with wrapping up uh, this. What was this? The fall semester? I uh, I, I would I, I would be, but uh, I'm actually on sabbatical this uh, this uh, semester. So oh, good. I've been uh, working on a few writing projects uh, along the way, which is also how we met, right? Exactly. Uh, that I was giving a talk up north. Yeah. And so that's uh, it's a work in progress, right? Uh, yeah, the I mean the work I've been doing uh, lately has been uh, a long time uh, in progress, about seven years uh, uh, doing the research. Uh, so now I'm over, I'm at, I'm at the sort of the final stages of uh, writing 
a few articles, but mostly working on a book. You know, it's fascinating to me, the work that you've been doing, and, and what caught my attention when I heard you, you speak when, when we were together at, at Berkeley was it, it, the idea that it hadn't occurred to anybody or that this research hadn't been done before. I mean, so I should explain the research is on uh, mostly on on uh, Chicanos and Latinos who fought in the Vietnam War. Yes, um, and uh, I'm an oral historian by training, uh, and and as a oral as as an oral historian, I've been um, um, collecting people's stories in general. Uh, you know, I, uh, uh, for for years, but uh, I've really been focusing on on not just. Uh, Mexican American and other Latinos who uh, served in in Vietnam, um, but also those who served in the military during the Vietnam era, and also their families, uh, their uh, wives, siblings, uh, children, uh, even. Um, and so it's been something of a of a community history, really, in a way, uh, for me uh, to collect those stories. Um, I'm not the first. I mean, you know, as long as there's been oral historians, there have been people collecting stories, and and in many ways. Uh, military history uh, has always been reliant on on a lot of on a really strong uh, tradition of oral history. Um, there have been a handful of people who who have uh, collected uh, these kinds of stories. Um, most notably, down at uh, UT, um, um, Maggie Zivas Rodriguez, who's been uh, collecting veterans' oral histories uh, through her project for a long time, and uh, another author, uh, Lea Ivarra, who uh, actually uh, published a. A short book uh, of oral histories just transcribed with uh, Chicano Vietnam vets, um, but uh, yeah, it's certainly an under an understudied uh, topic. Um, and and you know, I come from a I come from a family. My father uh, is a Vietnam veteran. I was going to say. So my, is this personal my, for you? I mean, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> broadly speaking, everything in in what we call Chicanx Latinx studies is is personal to me, right? Okay, uh, it's, okay. Uh, it's it's the story of 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 my communities uh, that I'm a part of. So so it's always a personal thing. This is this is That's uh, equally so. Uh, you know, my dad is a is a Vietnam veteran. Uh, my tío, his brother, is a is a Vietnam vet. And as I as I mentioned in a lot of my talks, you know, growing up. Uh, um, a lot of my friends' fathers were were Vietnam vets. A good number of the adult males that I that I knew in my social world of, of you know East LA and east of Los Angeles um, were were Vietnam vets. Um, so I, I've I've known from just life experience that it's a, it's it's something that impacted our our communities in in profound ways. And um, you know now in a in a position as a as a historian, we have the ability to sort of think about that a little bit more and share those stories back with people and um it's a it's a it's a real uh, not only a personally rewarding thing but uh, um it's a, it's great to be able to make it a professionally rewarding one too how how difficult was this and and i ask because i also have uh, men in, in my family who served in vietnam uh, cousins brothers-in-law etc mm-hmm. and and they were they were very quiet they did not speak of their experiences mm-hmm. Uh, at all, if 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 at all, very little. So, uh, was it difficult for you to get them to to talk about their experience? Um, I I I think what you describe right there is more often than not uh, the tradition, uh, mm-hmm. especially especially for veterans of of this war in the United States, where um, you know returning home uh, was a very difficult thing. You know you 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 didn't feel celebrated and and 
and congratulated for your service. You you felt uh, all the other kinds of things ostracized, and that's something that you had to keep it private. There was also a, a, a profound lack of resources to help those veterans uh, return home and, and acclimate back into life, and and a lot of the traditional survival strategies that people had to come up with for themselves to deal with the kinds of traumas that they were a part of uh, often involves not talking about it, right? Um, so yeah. I think that there's a, a strong tradition there um, that, that if you're doing oral histories, you, you come up against. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's for, for me as an oral historian, I don't want to have to talk anybody into telling their story. Gotcha, yeah. <laughs> um, it's on, on, on a couple levels, uh, right? Uh, but the biggest one for me is the, is the psychological impacts of that, right? We're, when we're talking about war, we're often talking about things that, that, are, that are psychologically traumatic. Um, there are difficult things, and I definitely don't want to ever uh, uh, make someone talk about those things if they're not ready and willing to talk about those things. Um, so a lot, a lot of things have helped the process. I, I think the, the biggest one is time. Um, I'm, I'm interviewing men uh, 40 years and 50 years now uh, after they've come back from war. Um, that time has uh, given them a, 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 a lot of time to process a lot of time to find space, a lot of time to find the words and, and the meanings that they want to share. Um, it's made them in some ways ready to, to talk about for the men that I've talked to. Um, a lot of uh, the, the things that have been helping too are the age uh, of people. Um, we're, we're approaching a time where this generation is, uh, you know, sadly, uh, uh, you know, statistically going to start dying off in, in much larger numbers, this baby boomer generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as people approach that, that phase of life, they often, you know, are, are a little bit more willing to, to sit and share their story, make sure that, that, they, that they know that, that things that they went through were part of the, the historical record. Um, I think a lot of people who I've interviewed uh, have begun going to get some services uh, as well through local vet centers uh, throughout the country. Um, that that is uh, involved uh, them being in in group uh, therapy sessions and 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 rap sessions uh, where they can talk to other vets, and so they maybe in some ways have, have become a little bit more prepared to talk about their stories as well. So all those things that have sort of helped uh, uh, against what 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 we talk about this trend for people not to tell their stories over time. It's a long uh, process of trying to get past I, I would imagine trauma. Uh, and trying to get past a, a lot of, I think, cultural barriers as well. Did you? Do you think that had a lot to do with it? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I have. Here's some some advantages, right? Like uh, I I am a, a Chicano. Yeah. I'm I'm the age of uh, uh, many of the the men's children, uh, many of the veterans' children, uh, and so if they've never talked about their story before. When they sit down to talk with me, um, there's a sense of a little bit of a sense of trust, even though we we don't know each other all uh, yet. Um, there's a there's a sense that uh, they're also passing off uh, the story that they wanted to tell others to somebody who's sort of standing in for those others sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of things that sort of help uh, put that at ease, uh, to be sure. But when I sit down with people, what what I'm really trying to do as an oral historian isn't just to to get their story so that I can write about them. It's to create um, a document with them is to create an, a recording that can be saved uh, somewhere for future generations that gives their life story. And so when I sit down with them, I, I, I'm 
very I, I I never ask questions about about traumatic things that they experienced in war. Um, what I start with are are questions about their childhood. I want to know where their family is from, uh, you know, who their grandparents were, who their parents were, what it was like growing up, where they grew up, and when they grew up, and what their schooling was like. Uh, did they go to church? I, I want to hear all about their entire social life. Um, and, and, and that's because they, like all uh, Chicanos and Latinos in the United States, um, our, our stories are so important. They're, they're such an important part of, of what the 20th century and, and the present has been for the United States. And yet a lot of our experiences, uh, a lot of our life experiences aren't part of that that official historical record. You know, it's very difficult to find uh, historical records uh, often that, that, that talk about just the everyday life of, of uh, Latinx people in the United States. And so I, 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 part of part of these, these oral histories are just to get their experiences of growing up and, and, and eventually how that led to the military. And, 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 and the key is to really let them dictate their own story and, and to really just help guide them uh, toward, a, toward creating a productive a productive recording, but but really to let them uh, take it where they want to take it and where they feel comfortable to take it. What did you find? Was it was there anything that surprised you in in your conversations with them? Oh, I mean, every every interview I've ever done, I think, gives me some kind of of surprises. Um, I think the the if anybody who's ever done an oral history before, um, they'll know it's a it's a it's a very um, uh, it's a very powerful kind of experience, you know, to have somebody sit, uh, especially uh, people like this who are sharing parts of their life story that they haven't shared with other people, uh, that they haven't even very often talked out loud about, mm-hmm. um, to, to sit and, and share that with another person who they who they don't know. That's a, it's a very uh, humbling experience um, to begin with, and, and it's a very powerful one. Um, and inside of, uh, of that is, are always uh, just, just, the interesting diversity of who we are as a people uh, in this country, of, of, of the various ways that we we are and, and the various kinds of experiences that we've had. Uh, you know, these unique individual things, when you add them up uh, as a collective, it's a, it's a community story. You know? Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. I, I, get, I, I, get to, I get to experience the building out of, of, of that as, as you sit and, and, and listen to people tell their stories. Were there any individual stories that stand out for you? Um, I think, I think, uh, I think almost everybody, I mean, the, the main things that I'm very interested in, in, in people's stories as they relate to Vietnam are, um, how, uh, they, they, they ended up in the military. Um, what was their personal individual pathway, uh, toward ending up in the military? Um, how did they experience, uh, their time in Vietnam? Um, what was it like for them uh, if, if they were uh, in Vietnam and, and what was it like for them if they were in roles of, of combat and what was their daily life like inside of the, the military, um, all those kinds of things. And, and then um, their return home. Um, I'm very interested in, in uh, what people did uh, when they came home. What was their experience like coming home? What ways did they deal with uh, what they were going through or not? Um, and then, you know, toward the end, how they sort of look back on their lives and and uh, and make meaning out of it. You know, um, every one of the men who I've spoken with, uh, who's a veteran, is, uh, you know, at different times in their life, uh, you know, were didn't know if they were going to make it. You know, I mean, it was yeah. some rough stuff that they were going through. And now, 40, 50 years later, they're they know that they're survivors. You know, that they've been through it all. And and even though they may struggle with things and in the present right now, they know that they've survived it. 
Um, and that's a really precious position to be in, right? It's one where we can look back at our life and see see meanings that we couldn't have seen when we were only 20 or 30 years old. Um, and what, and uh, all the elements of those kinds of stories really, really pop out for me and, and become memorable. What about stories in general? Like you were talking about the pathway to the military. Um, were there extraordinary or um, maybe even by design uh, social, socioeconomic factors that, that led may, many uh, uh, Mexican-American Latino young men to uh, enroll or otherwise be drafted when that started? Yeah, oh, certainly. Um, you know, a, a famous historian named Chris Appy, he wrote a book called Working Class War, uh, talking about Vietnam. And that's really uh, the way to understand uh, how people ended up in the military. Um, it was very much a, a working class war. So a population that is disproportionately uh, more working class, poorer uh, than the average U.S. population, is going to be more susceptible to all the various ways that people ended up in the military at that time. And and people want to think, oh, well, then it's uh, it's just poor kids who had no option and they all get drafted. Oh, a lot of them, a lot of them enlisted, right? A lot of them also came came to this, uh, whether they were enlisted or drafted, they came to it with a profound sense of, of patriotism as well. Um, and those those kinds of stories come out uh, uh, of the oral histories uh, at the same time. Um, but it's important to to put those inside of the economic context. Um, Chicanos and Latinos in in the mid 20th century United States were. Uh, people who had less, um, much less opportunities, as we do now statistically, um, uh, for education and for certain kinds of jobs, uh, than did uh, the average uh, population, the average white population in the United States. Uh, and so, going to the military is is one way uh, that people chose to be productive and to uh, earn a living and to make something of their life when they didn't have other options that they could see. And it was the so, I mean, like a, it was the ultimate risk. I mean, for 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 many, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, there. You know, statistically speaking, you know, most people who ended up in the military at that time didn't end up in Vietnam. But uh, but still, it was a profound risk, especially if you're going into the military towards the late '60s. Um, you yeah. know, a young Chicano kid, you know, from <laughs> rural California or, or rural Texas, like you're you're, you're probably going to end up in Vietnam. You know? There there is a, um, a community here in San Antonio, the Edgewood community, that had a yeah. disproportionate number of of young uh, Mexican American men who went to Vietnam, and, and many, many of them didn't come back. And, and that's um, remembered uh, every year on Veterans Day. They have a huge ceremony. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and those communities are everywhere throughout the Southwest, right? In, in Texas and Colorado and New Mexico and in Arizona, as well as California. Um, most most profoundly, I, I think, uh, they're, they're felt in, in less urban uh, places where a higher percentage of that population uh, went off. And, of course, many didn't come back. Um, people people remember that well because of the of the profound impact that it had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it people from from small rural towns where where almost every single male who graduates the high school, you know, small towns of a hundred people, small towns of three hundred people, where almost every young man who graduates the high school uh, is going off to the military and going off to Vietnam within a year of, of finishing high school, right? Wow. And, and some before they're even even done. What were the proportions um, I mean, of, of Latinos in Vietnam uh, uh, compared to the uh, population in general? Yeah, that's a it's a that's a very challenging question, you know. So as a, as a historian, I've had to work on other techniques to be able to answer those. Why is that? I'll say uh, the the reason why it's so challenging to begin with is that the U.S. military, uh, the Department of Defense didn't keep track of Latinos separately from all the other populations. 
Yeah. Um, racially speaking, he always kept track of African Americans and Native Americans and Asian Americans by the mid 20th century. But Latinos were seen as, as white, and so they were folded into the white category. And it's not until after Vietnam that the Department of Defense starts tracking Latinos in the military. So there's no straight up place that you can go just to find out the numbers of, of Chicanos and Latinos who served in the military and who served in Vietnam at that time. Um, so how do you go about? Do, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what we've been able to do is to look at uh, uh, big data sets that came after uh, things like the 1980 census, 1990 census, all these other uh, monthly reports that come out of a group called the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh-huh. and that do samples, and and then in the case of the census, that just do you know a general survey of the entire United States to try to find out how many Latinos are in the U.S. and how many are, are veterans of the Vietnam War. And that question even changes over time. Uh, not to get too detailed with it, but like I wish you could just go to the 1980 census. And that's one of the first ones that we ask about your military service and about whether or not you're Latino, what the census calls Hispanic. Yeah. Um, but the question it asks about veterans is if you are a veteran of the Vietnam War era, so it doesn't distinguish between those who served in, in Vietnam, the almost 3 million who served in Vietnam, uh, versus the, the, the millions more uh, who, who uh, were in the military in different parts of the United States at that time. But didn't necessarily um, go to Vietnam. Exactly. Um, but, but eventually we're able to get to, to a, um, a point where we can, uh, where we can uh, approximate uh, uh, that number. And um, it's about, it's about, 280, 290,000 uh, Latinos overall that were in the military uh, during that time period, mm-hmm. and about 180,000 of them, so uh, almost about 60%, a little over 60% uh, served in Vietnam. And what that breaks down to for the generation is is uh, an overrepresentation. Um, there, generally in the southwestern states, uh, we were about 11% of the total population. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're about a little under 14% of the draft age population, and of uh, the service rate, um, about uh, almost 18% of that generation went off to serve. Um, so um, wow. they're serving at a higher proportion than their than their share of the population, right? So, so you also um, uh, interviewed family, um, I would imagine spouses and children. Uh, did you find any uh, sort of a effect that their service had on future generations? Oh, yeah. I, I think, you know, the the first one that people always want to ask about is, I, I think when we think about Vietnam, we think about anti-war. Uh, we think about the anti-war movement, yeah. the way that that was such a big part of the Chicano movement throughout the Southwest. Um, and so most of the time when people uh, are asking me questions about that in, in classes or at talks, they want to know, you know, did it make anti-war families? And and there there are there are those kinds of things, right? When when your loved one uh, is off uh, fighting in a in a in a very distant place that you don't really even know exists until they go there, um, um, you know, it it makes us question those kinds of things uh, certainly. And and especially by the late 1960s, the war was growing increasingly unpopular here at the home front. Yeah. Um, but I think the the biggest effects don't have anything to do. The stories that come out from from family members um, have much less to do with politics than they have to do with all the other things. Um, 
and I I'll say two two big things. Uh, the first is how uh, we all struggle uh, as a community with the effects of of this kind of trauma, of this kind of uh, service and sacrifice over the decades since they came home. Okay. And the story of Vietnam is not just a story of these uh, veteranos, but it is a story of their loved ones, uh, especially of, of their wives. Uh, the women who I've spoken to have, uh, have a real strong uh, ownership themselves over this story. Right, uh, especially in a in a time where there weren't a lot of veteran services um, helping uh, these families out, helping the veterans out, um, the people in their lives who were closest to them, which is often their their partners, their wives, uh, had to shoulder a very heavy burden, uh, you know, of of essentially being, uh, you know, the heads of families uh, when when the, their husbands couldn't be present, of being. The consistent part of of, of, that, of those child's upbringing, as well as as the the informal counselors and and therapists, yeah. you know, with their husbands, as well as you know having to take care of themselves, right? And they they were equally young and 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 unaware of of what was going on and how to make sense of it um, as their as their partners were. Um, so it's it's very much a, a as I say the the effects of. of of that in the long term, it really shapes entire families and, and to a certain extent, entire communities. Um, the other thing uh, that that is 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 interesting uh, are the stories of when their loved ones are abroad, when their loved ones are in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. um, and the kind of daily life that that they lived uh, here in in places like East LA or San Antonio or you know Denver and and uh, connecting themselves up to, to this daily life of what was happening in Southeast Asia. And to me, that's a, that's a really interesting phenomenon. You know, as a historian, we, we need to think about how that, that takes these places, the, these barrios all throughout the Southwest, um, places that always have a, a connection, you know, across borders. You know, we always have this connection to, to places like Mexico, um, um, even when we're here in the United States. And the barrio is one of these places that always stretches, you know, across borders. But now in this time period, the barrio is stretching across a very different set of borders, right? Uh, across across an ocean and, and, and into Southeast Asia on the other side of the world where daily life in, in these barrio communities was intimately connected to what was happening on the other side of the world. And that's a really particular moment in, inside of our history um, that, that gave shape to, to everyday people's lives and, and to what they were doing to, to, you know, waking up every day. I've talked to one person I remember, and she tells her story of she went to 6.30 Mass every day, you know, to, to pray for her, her husband. Every day. Time for, for people who are writing letters uh, mm-hmm. every day or almost every day, care packages, you know, making tapes with one another. They're creating these connections between life over here and life over there. And uh, and, and the kind of human relations that stretch across the globe like that in that time period are, are really interesting things. What about connections with uh, others in the larger U.S. community who had that shared experiences where there may have been barriers in the past, were some of those barriers overcome um, with the, the, the larger, say, Anglo-American community? Um, you mean in terms of, of barriers that Latinos face? Yes. Education or employment? Or, or just social um, barriers? Because the, the war is, um, well, it, it seems to me that it would be a shared experience among families of all Parts of the country, so yeah. did, did that shared experience um, foster any kind of connection? 
Yeah, I think I think what you start to see in Vietnam that is in, important for us in, in, in U.S. history more generally is it's really a, a minority of families who are affected. Um, the baby boomer uh, generation uh, grows up. Uh, and and you know is very much associated with Vietnam and and they're growing up they're always uh, you know thinking about Vietnam and the specter of of that war is hanging over them as they reach adulthood mm-hmm. um, but the vast majority of baby boomers uh, never went to Vietnam uh, about 28 million uh, male baby boomers aged uh, up into draft age uh, during this era and only three million total uh, less than three million actually about 2.8 million served boots on ground in in Southeast Asia and that means that uh, only about 10 percent of that generation uh, went to Vietnam uh, 90 percent did not wow. um, and so and 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 this is the phenomena of war after Vietnam as well right we have we have uh, um, you know uh, just a slice of of the of the population now seven percent of the US population that are veterans at all Right, not not just combat veterans, but in total, um, we've we've gone from a, a time, especially after World War II, where where the experience of fighting in the military was was very widespread and common and very shared, uh, into one that's very marginalized and almost hidden in a lot of ways. And and there are big changes, you know, in the military that that have created that. Not the least of which is is moving to an all volunteer force instead of compulsory yeah. service and all that kind of stuff. But so in a, in a lot of ways, this, this generation is, is already uh, feeling the effects of those kinds of changes. War isn't the same way. A service isn't as it had been uh, traditionally uh, an, an easy pathway into the mainstream. It doesn't necessarily connect up our communities into the mainstream as easily as, as service would have in, in previous uh, times, just because it's more and more marginalized at that point. And then also uh, you have to think that the war itself uh, and the unpopularity of the war, especially by the time that it's over, changes that as well. Right? The U.S. public had really, uh, in a lot of ways, just grown tired of it and wanted Vietnam to go away. And mm-hmm. veterans are this lingering reminder of of what we did and continuing kinds of, of maybe obligations that we were shirking, you know, by not taking care of, of uh, veteranos when they came back um, or their families. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, ignoring them was the, especially because their numbers were such a small percentage of that generation, ignoring them was the easier thing to do, you know. How are we doing on that count, taking care of veteranos, specifically having to do with the, the Vietnam era? Well, I'll say uh, all the vet centers uh, that I've been to and the people that I talk who work there, the professionals who work there, um, all of them will anecdotally tell you that one of the fastest populations making use of them and and of their services is this Vietnam generation. Um, uh, That isn't necessarily um, from any any effort on, on their part. It's really more of just the 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 place that they are in their lives. Right. These are are men. Uh, and some women even who are retiring uh, now from their jobs mm-hmm. and have been retired. And when you don't have that daily uh, work routine, um, you 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 have more time to think. And and some stuff starts coming up, and you get to the point where you're willing to deal with it now, right? Because you can't avoid it anymore. Yeah. And and they're they're experiencing a lot of that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. there are greater amounts of services uh, uh, now than there had been in the past. Um, things like post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't even named clinically yet. Right, it wasn't the a late thing. 70s, yeah. Right. Um, the the formal what we have today is not just the Veterans Affairs and their hospitals, but these what we call vet centers, which are are uh, 
able to provide short-term services uh, to vets, including applying for for benefits um, and and establishing you know what percentage of their disability you know uh, requires them to get benefits. Um, all all the vet center system didn't exist uh, back then when they were coming home. Like a lot of the things that exist today to help uh, vets out uh, are are things that are things that we did as a society to correct uh, all the things that we didn't do for yeah. the Vietnam generation. Right? I get you. And so it's, it's an appropriate thing that they're, that they're making use of it so much. It's a good thing. Is there a parallel with the, the, the veteranos from World War II that they came back, they took advantage of the GI Bill, and they started building the Latino middle class across the country? Uh, is there mm -hmm. a story to be told about the Vietnam veteranos? So it, that, that's been an interesting thing as well. There's a there's a a lot of data that we've looked at. Uh, me and a, a colleague of mine in, in economics, uh, Fernando Lozano, and uh -huh. uh, we, we we looked at uh, uh, how veterans have have performed uh, economically over time. We looked at World War II veterans, Korean veterans, and Vietnam veterans. Oh, fascinating! And, and throughout most throughout most uh, of these wars, well, at least for World War II in Korea. Uh, those who served uh, did better than their non-veteran cohort, uh, which is to say that the uh, white soldier who, who served during World War II performed better over his lifetime economically than the white soldier who didn't go uh, to World War II. Gotcha. Uh, the same is true for African Americans and the same is true for Latinos. Vietnam is where uh, that data starts to flip. Um, white veterans uh, perform worse economically over their lifetime than the non-veteran cohort. African Americans perform worse uh, if they're a veteran than if they're a non-veteran cohort. Um, and for uh, Latinos, uh, the evidence is the opposite. Um, the Vietnam uh, generation, um, those uh, who went off uh, and served in the military have over their lifetime, over these last 40, 50 years, perform better economically than uh, the ones who did not. And by economically, I'm not just talking about they earn more money. Um, they're more likely to be in a white-collar versus blue-collar job. Uh, they're more likely to be a homeowner. Uh, they're uh, more likely to have a college degree. They're even less likely than their non-veteran cohort to be divorced. Uh, and divorce is an economic uh, function as well, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so uh, that's been a, a noteworthy thing, and we try to make sense of that. And, you know, the the easy knee-jerk thing that you would say is, oh, well, being part of the military helped help these Chicanos middle class the way previous generations did. It afforded them opportunities and acceptance and all this kind of stuff. Um, and there's certainly a little bit of that at play, right? Uh, they did have things like the GI Bill that helped them. Um, it, it maybe didn't help them so much because of the way that college costs were rising at that time uh, in the 1970s after coming back. It, it may not have helped them economically as much as it gave them at least something, a little something, and, and planted the idea, you know, why don't I go to college? Because I have this this benefit here. They have the opportunities um, to do it, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's, it's sort of like a motivator, right? So, so um, is, is and, there a way to put, but, put your but, finger on it? Like, um, but I think I think the other the other the, the thing that it's hard to, to get away from is that Latinos in general are experiencing a bump by the 1970s. Um, it's uh, a little bit of what we could think of as a civil rights bump. Um, things like education, as we know, had started to open up with 
programs, EOP. Um, by that time, uh, there there are uh, special programs reaching out to first-generation Latino students in places like Texas and California. There are counselors that are specially hired, you know, to meet the particular needs of the, uh, the cultural needs of our first-generation students. Um, there's a lot of expansion in sort of programs like Chicano Studies that it started to institute itself in all these places. Yeah, and so there's there's a there's a benefit in education. At the same time, there's a benefit in the job market. Um, there's all these expanding jobs for the baby boomer generation. There's an affirmative action effort there. There's a diversity, you know, impetus there. And so, um, and so they're, they're doing better overall. And at the same time, the ones who don't go into the military are a lot undereducated compared to their military cohort. Um, they're they're uh, undereducated, and that makes them uh, perform worse in the job market. So I guess the, the long and the short of it is it's hard to say whether whether military was a, a benefit or not. Um, what's clearly true is that the, the men who went off into the military, the men who went off to Vietnam from our community, from the Chicano communities, uh, were kind of like the cream of the crop, the best and the brightest. Now, you, they were the ones who could have been going off to college uh, if, if, if they had the, the resources earlier on. But uh, say say that again, because I think that's important. The, the, the Latinos who went off to Vietnam were the best and the brightest of our community? I mean, these are guys who graduated high school, and if they had graduated high school five years later, uh, they could have found a, a, their pathway into college um, a lot easier, right? The, the, the systems would have been there in place uh, to, to bring them in and to support them. Um, like a, a lot of the vets I've interviewed are, are people who graduate, uh, they start taking community college courses, and they're just waiting to get drafted, right? Even though they're, 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 in, they're in community college, right? Yeah. Some of them uh, flunk out, and so they, they lose their deferment. And others have their deferment, but when, they, when it comes up, it's like, well, it's time. You know, because they don't see any any purpose in the college, or they they also see uh, they also see a lot of purpose in in defending your country, right? They're growing up in this Cold War era, yeah, um, where they're where they believe that that that'll give them a purpose in life, right? And and I think I think that's that's that you know that's part of what I try to un- uncover in my story is like um, like all people. Um, we look for for a reason to be, you know. Exactly. What, yeah. What yeah. is our what is our point here here on this earth, and and what what are we going to do? And for men, in particular, uh, and and for women, but our our roles are 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 what we say in academia. They're gendered, right? That we we get certain messages for what it's like to be a young woman and to find your purpose, and we get certain messages of what it's like to be a young man and find your purpose. And in the Cold War, a big part of that for young men was being. Uh, democracy mm-hmm. right that, that you were involved in a in a in a global we were all involved in a global war against this communist threat and yeah. a lot of people took that took that uh took that hook line and finger right <laughs> yeah no and it was the, and, it was and, the and classic it shape who they were it was the classic good versus evil right and we were on the good yeah. side and and for a lot of guys you have to think here's how it relates back to economics you know you you're you're there you're sitting in a in a college classroom and you're struggling there's no special counselors there to help you at the same time you're working like uh, some kind of blue collar factory job um and you don't see a lot of 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 opportunity to move up yeah. right and then someone throws at your at your feet uh it's time for you to be a soldier and defend the country um, that 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 gives you a sense of fulfillment that you might not be getting, a kind of like male masculine fulfillment uh, that that you may not be getting out of the other things that you chose, and and that that helps propel people to make certain decisions. Wow! Now you traveled to Vietnam as a part of your research. Yeah, yeah, I have. 
Tell us about that. I've, been, what... I, I've done a bunch of archival work here, you know, been in different places all over California and Washington, D.C. But, um, yeah, I also made a, a about a three-week trip uh, to Vietnam to, to go to uh, as much of the country as I could. I, I flew into the north in Hanoi, uh, and then I uh, did a tour of the Midlands for about a week. Um, I flew into Da Nang and then drove up to Hue and Dong Ha and, and over to the border with Laos. Um, and uh, then flew out of way into uh, Saigon, uh, to what they call Ho Chi Minh City now. What were you looking uh, for? Spent about a week there. Yeah. Um, well, a, a bunch of things. Uh, the the main point was to go visit museums uh, where they tell the story, where the Vietnamese tell the story of this war, and to get a sense about how it is uh, in the in the popular conception of of how how they how they narrate that war and there there there's a it's a profound difference obviously as as we would imagine from how we talk about it um mm-hmm. and it's very interesting to sort of see it put in the vietnamese perspective overall like when uh, vietnamese tell the story there's differences between how they do it in the north and how they do it in the south and yeah. in museums but it's largely um you know pretty influenced by by the state right by the the government wanting to promote a certain kind of narrative and and overall when they when they tell a story of that narrative um, what they talk about being the American War um, is one part of a much larger story, right? Uh, and that much larger story is really uh, centering the uh, uh, independence of Vietnam in the context of this thousand-year struggle against uh, China and then France and then the United States. Um, it's part of their narrative yeah. uh, um, that really stretches out into a much larger period of time. And I think that's that, that's a, that, that's just one that's a, that's a, it's an important and powerful way that it's different, right? Is that the U.S. often thinks, you know, the world begins and ends with it, you know, that nothing exists until we understand it. And, and <laughs> right, the US yeah, yeah. Story, the U.S. story of Vietnam will always be uh, uh, only concerned with with uh, how we relate to Vietnam through that war and through the, and 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 however we relate after. Um, and of course, the Vietnamese is part of a much larger story. Um, the other the other point of my trip was to go visit some of the places the the men I interviewed were were at. Um, yeah. To go uh, to go visit uh, places where Marines were, especially uh, you know in the Quan Tri province and and Quezon and all these uh, places, as well as visiting down uh, southern bases and uh, was to see kind of what some of these these uh, fire bases and U.S. Uh, bases had turned into uh, over time too. Um, in the middle, in the middle of the country, in the central part, where there's a a lot less of a need for uh, a strong Vietnamese military establishment, a lot of the old military stuff has has turned into museums. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you can go visit the Quezon base, and it's a it's a little museum where they moved a bunch of stuff from all over the country, a bunch of helicopters and planes and other military stuff that they found, and they placed it all there uh, to make it look like uh, an active military base. And there's a little museum and everything. Um, and then you go down into the south, and where there is a need, uh, where they where they have a need to have their military in certain places to defend against what they see as still China trying to encroach on their country. And a lot of these bases were turned into Vietnamese bases. Um, and oh, some of okay. them, uh, they they they've used them and turned them into other things. For instance, the the airport in in Hue, Vietnam, um, is uh, partly on the old landing strip that the U.S. had built uh, for their time there. So that was to see sort of what what's what's become of those places too. And it was a very interesting trip. It's a it's a it's an amazingly beautiful country. Um, just a very wonderful, warm, um, welcoming people, very eager to talk to you and 
and and especially when they learn that you're from the United States, yeah. they want to practice their English with you, and and it's it's just a, it's an amazing country. I mean, just I, I I almost don't have the words for it. It's just a very dynamic place, especially in the South. If you ever have a chance to visit, I would highly recommend it to people. So seven years of doing your oral histories and research and traveling across the globe, um, putting it all together in a book. How's that coming along? It's going, it's going well. It's going well. I mean, I'm at that point now where the writing is coming easy because so much of the, the work has been done. Uh, and this time I, I didn't have to be rushed, you know, towards the tenure clock, as we say in academia. Yeah. So I could take my time and, and do it the right way. Um, it's been going well. I mean, as you can tell, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a professor for a living, right? And that means that we talk about things in certain ways. And in lots of ways, I'm, I'm trapped by my own vocabulary too, right? I'm, I'm an academic. Uh-huh. And I'm really working hard with this book uh, to, to not be uh, uh, as academic um, as, as, as I might be inclined to be, uh, because it's very important to me that the men and women who I write about in this book uh, have the opportunity to read it, to see their stories reflected back at them, and and that they that they want to read it and that it's accessible to, to them to read. So, I'm I'm trying very hard to write for 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 our 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 gente, our communities than than I am trying to write for academia. Um, because it's a very different type of data, right? Oral history is a very different type of data than just cold statistics. I think I I mean yeah and and uh, or you know what historians normally do you know just dry archival uh records that yeah. don't really give you people's voices right and so here oral histories you always have that as an advantage you have people's stories and you have people telling their stories and so um, how how we can use them to propel that story forward uh, gives us a lot of advantages, yeah. And part of that also, the the storytelling in it has given you the opportunity to turn this into a play. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm I'm always concerned, as I said, about making my work accessible, right? That that people can can read it and and understand it. And it, it, at some point, you you have to realize that no matter how well you write a book, and no matter how open it is and unacademic it is, or how it can speak to a very wide audience, uh, wide audience. Uh-huh. Um, no matter how well you do that, a book is still something that a lot of people, maybe even most people, are not reading. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm also very uh, uh, focused on trying to find other ways to share the work that I've done uh, with with our community. Um, so this past uh, year, I had a, a public history exhibit based on the oral histories. We called it uh, uh, Voices Veteranos. Okay. And we had it uh, uh, down here in Southern California for five weeks in this local community gallery. And, and up on the walls, you know, we had snippets of, of all these oral histories and we had a bunch of art uh, from, from Chicano artists uh, uh, who were painting things during the Vietnam era and about Vietnam since. We had a bunch of, of, of videos and, and posters and all these other things that we, we created into this three-room gallery. And that was a way to, to share this story uh, in a way that people can, can experience it and learn from it in a much more open way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this year, um, as you mentioned, um, I've taken a whole bunch of the oral histories and I've turned them into a play, um, what we call a, a testimonial style play, where people are, are are standing up on stage and sort of sharing their story. Although these stories are are pieced together from from a whole bunch of veterans, um, but uh, right now we're we're what's what's called workshopping that play. Okay. Uh, uh, doing reads of it uh, to make some edits and things like that, and we're doing a stage reading of it on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, down here in downtown Los Angeles, uh, and then we're moving towards a full-scale production in in LA uh, this September. 
So uh, that uh, hopefully you'll let me know when that happens, so I can let people know, so they can go see it. It's going to be. Uh, is it a, a large theater? About about how how big of a of a production is this going to be? Um, not a huge thing um, for for cost purposes. Um, yeah, it'll be about a ninety nine seat theater. Okay. Um, when you when you get a more than a nine nine seat theater, I've I've learned uh, the the cost uh, because of the union of of actors. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> okay. Um, so that's they 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 change so that's... to keep cost uh, uh, where we can afford them. It's going to be a smaller theater. Ninety nine is yeah, like the tipping we'll, we'll point. Run, we'll run for about we'll run for about two weeks in LA, and we're just we're just about to to line up that theater right now. Well, congratulations. Um, so I'll have more I'll have more word on that pretty soon. If anybody's interested, they could check out my website summersandoval dot com, and and I'll have the latest news up on there. Perfect. Now, now when, when uh, researchers, academics do this type of research, there, there always leaves, um, th- there's always left um, questions that other researchers could pick up. What, what, what do you think uh, is needed now uh, to further, further the kind of research that you've been doing? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the very, I mean, easy next step that, that everybody turns to uh, is, is what about veterans today? Yeah. Uh, everybody knows that the the Department of Defense and and the U.S. military makes a real special effort to recruit from uh, Latino communities uh, today. Um, even though very very few uh, of us overall in the U.S. population serve in the military right now, um, Latinos are are going to be the main person source uh, for for the 21st century military. Uh, and so, and so, understanding that uh, that impact, and 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 what what has been the the experience of those returning from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, into their communities today, um, I think that's the the natural set of questions that that pops up. And and I I know that there are good researchers already doing doing a lot of work like that, especially people in in sociology and and social welfare. Um, I would say uh, overall, uh, you know. To me, whenever we tell a story uh, inside of, of Latinx studies uh, broadly, uh, no matter what we're talking about in the past, um, our present is always a part of it. Right? And right now, we're living in a present that's that's shocking yes. uh, for 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 how it involves us. Uh, you you know, I mean, 40 years ago, if you had asked somebody coming out of the Chicano movement how how Chicanos were going to be by by you know heading into 2010s, 2020s, mm-hmm. um, people wouldn't have guessed something like this, right? That that would have been this many steps backward, you know, with a president who who just is a, a white supremacist and who who uses uh, Latinos as this overt scapegoat uh, for everything that's wrong in the country, and 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 partly uh, to me, what that highlights is is how far we still have to go to communicate to more people, uh, and not only inside of our own communities but outside. Um, how much a part of this country's history we've been a part of, right? Yeah. Um, this the, the, that we are we have a long tradition of of being integrated into every single facet of life in the United States, uh, both good and bad, and 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 these stories are important uh, uh, reminders of that, and these stories help challenge that kind of stupid racism that people can can throw out without any facts um, because the the evidence of the past is overwhelming uh, that it's that it's different. Um, that we are a part of this country, that we've made profound contributions to making this country anything that it is today, and that we continue to do that in the present and, and will in the future. And that means that we have uh, both a stake 
in, in, in what happens in this country, but uh, we also have uh, a lot of rights as a result of it, you know, that we have, no matter who we are, whether we're undocumented in this country or, or, or uh, documented, as they say, no matter who we are, uh, we have we have rights here, and 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 part part of those rights are are based on our just humanity, and and the other part is based on the strong legacy uh, that we have of of making contributions to building what this country is. Absolutely, um, the, the, and and these stories are, are important to that. You know, as I, as I tell you know as I, I tell people any any chance I get, you know, nobody in this country uh, today uh, will 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 finish their day without eating something that was that was planted, picked, packed, or or processed by Spanish-speaking hands. Right? Uh, they're, 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 we 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 literally are are the the life-giving work of this country right now today. Right. And and what is more important than that, right? The work that that literally allows us to live our lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, it, it is it is the the biggest and most important uh, kind of contribution that you just one of of thousands that we make on a daily basis. And that's why the type of work that you've done, I think, is so important. That's why I wanted to talk to you today, uh, and and uh, and to bring these stories to light because they're being told, but uh, we need to tell the story of the story being told, right? It, 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 I think it has to it has to amplify in in a way that hopefully we can do here at New Stocko. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it uh, a lot to talk with you today. <laughs> Definitely. For, for those listening, if, if you could repeat the name of your website, if they want to do some more research or find out more about what you're doing. I know you gave it to us already, but what was that? It's uh, my my last names, my two last names, Summers okay. Sandoval. So Tomas Summers Sandoval is my name. I'm uh-huh. from College. They can search that way too. And it's uh, summersandoval.com. Summersandoval.com, yeah. Very good. Well, thank you for your time. Then th- Thank you for thank being you. with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. We'll be in touch. You know, there is so much more to this conversation, but uh, time gives us limits, hands us limits. And uh, we try to get as much as we can into one podcast. But, you know, the professor's work is going to be published soon. And uh, if you live in in the Northern California area, in the Fresno area, there is going to be that play that he spoke of. And hopefully there'll be enough interest that it'll be something that'll uh, be taken on the road so that we can all... We can all see it and we can all um, be part of, of this, this important work that the professor is doing. So that concludes our podcast. And because today is Memorial Day, a very deep, deep held uh, gratitude, thankfulness, and uh, uh, honoring the memory of all those who perished in, in the line of, of duty in, in, in the wars uh, defending our country. I know there are many, uh, many Latinos who have given their life and uh, in defense of the United States, a country that they love immensely, as we all do. So um, on this Memorial Day, uh, it, it's with thanks and with gratitude that we remember them all. Until next time. Bye-bye.